the Dark Side. I'm your host, Brianna. I'm Dyson. And this is Dark Adaptation. trying not to forget <laughs> where are we right now it's okay all right you're here i'll, I'll carry this thing I, I got this okay i got you man okay don't worry all right we're gonna get through this this is gonna be fine <laughs> nobody panic okay now that everyone's calmed down what are we doing today uh, well um today's episode 57 all right that's what we're doing today all right and I uh, just wanted to say first that I hope everyone enjoyed our first ever three-part series. Woo! That's love pass. Yeah. Uh, that was uh, quite a quite a journey to go on, you know? It's you actually did. like, sorry, what? You did an amazing job on that one. Oh my God, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> oh my God. How many pots of coffee have you had not enough actually i was gonna make some more probably later are you being serious do you even know what time it is i look man no <laughs> i don't know i was just gonna say i hope everyone enjoyed the first three-part series if you had a chance to listen to because like it was a lot um in total it's like over five hours worth of content so i bet people had to listen in segments and get caught up in whatever but i just hope you enjoyed it mm-hmm. so i was gonna say that was weird to be done die to love pass because it was like pretty much a month that i was just fucking balls deep in that thing yeah just taking it all in so i could tell you guys a you know good tale so many google translate pronunciations (laughs) were playing in this room just sporadically throughout the month yeah that's true Uh, it's pretty common though yeah how many did you hear today Oh, God, I was zoning in and out. There's a few still going on, yeah. Yeah, for this case, just a couple of things. I was like, I don't fucking know how to say that, or I'm just dumb, and I'm like, I don't even know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) I had to Google this. So today's case is going to be a little bit of a change-up, you know? We've Mm -hmm. had three weeks that died to love pass. Mm -hmm. It was something. Nothing happened. It was something. Nothing happened. lasted. They went for a hike. They had a lovely time. You didn't hear about them again because they went off social media. Nothing happened. Sasha K was not holding a little notebook. And even if he was, there's nothing written. <laughs> Nothing's here. Nothing. Nothing's on this. Oh, no. He didn't write anything. Anyways. <laughs> All right. So are you ready for the, this week's episode to change it up a bit and get into something different? Change your pace? Ready to go? All right. Great. Okay. Okay. Ready? Okay. Go ahead. On December 25th. 1971. Rescue planes flew above the Peruvian jungle searching for Lanza Flight 508, which had disappeared the day before in a thunderstorm. It was nearly impossible for searchers to locate any signs of a wreckage through the dense forest, but they were certain they were looking for plane remnants and bodies. The chance that anyone could survive a crash from miles in the sky was surely impossible. Little did they know, a passenger was gaining consciousness on the forest floor and readying herself to trek out of the wildly diverse and unpredictable jungle area of the Amazon rainforest. Today, we're talking about the survival story of Julianne Kupka, the sole survivor of the deadliest lightning strike disaster in aviation history. Oh, good lord. Get ready for this. I'm ready. we get into the deadliest lightning strike disaster in aviation history we have to start from the beginning sure do yeah uh-huh that's right we gotta go there we're going back in time gonna go there hans wilhelm hans wilhelm kupke and maria von mikolovich radke 
Okay, I have. Okay, time out. Okay, yes, Dyson. Okay, all right. <laughs> Pick some fucking stories of some average people named John and Jessica. Listen, these could be average people. <laughs> this might be average names in Germany. As a Western listener, <laughs> and about as white bread as it comes. You're so white. It's true. I'm very white. Well. <laughs> yeah, so are German people, though. They're also very white. That is true. I have no joke about that. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> okay. Hans Wilhelm Kupke and Maria von Mikulovich Radecki. Whew, yeah. Bang that one out. That was a good one. They were both biology students at the University of Kiel in Germany. Mm-hmm. And this was in 1947. And they met and they fell in love and they got engaged. Oh. And in late 1948, Hans Wilhelm was offered a job in Peru at Lima's Museum of Natural History. God, that sounds fun. Yeah. And he was he was like, that sounds fun. He was super excited. He accepted the job and he wanted to get there immediately. And he's like, where are all the Lima's? <laughs> Sized. <laughs> That took me a minute. Where are where are lemurs native to? South America? Uh Madagascar. That's yeah, not Madagascar the same thing. is all I know because of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> y'all, it's like 1.30 a.m. We're just Yeah. Y'all guys, this could be an episode. We're just gonna rename the entire podcast Slap Happy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Okay, so Hans Wilhelm, he was like, fuck yeah, man, let's do this. Lima's Museum of Natural History. I'm excited. I want this job. I'm going there immediately. But mm-hmm. it's 1948. This was shortly after World War II. Mm-hmm. It's already the Cold War times. We're talking Hans Wilhelm. He's very German. Yep. And travel in Europe was not easy in general at this time. Then you add on top of the fact that he was German. So there was no passports for Germans at this point. Oh, really? Yeah, apparently, because the passports that would have been issued recently would have been under Hitler. Yeah. So they were like SS, basically branded passports. So they obviously were like revoked. Right. But they hadn't had new passports put in place in 1948. Well, it just seems like poor management. Well, also, it was, I'm sorry, like, Literally, my family is from Germany, but like, you know, Germany, they're kind of messed up, so. Yeah, they they did several things wrong. (laughs) So there was no passports. Yeah. So Hans Wilhelm was like, well, gee, dang it. What am I going to do about this? Mm -hmm. So he he figured out what he was going to do about this. You know what he did? He 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 traveled to southern, that southern German border, and he trekked over several mountain ranges. Oh, shit. He ended up getting arrested. And oh, served okay. time in an Italian prison camp, which at this time Italy is its whole own fucking mess of communism. Yeah, I don't, and... uh, not a fan of Italy around this period either. Yeah, because they they were having all of their own troubles. The people were like in different parties. There was lots of worries about getting sort of infiltrated by Soviet Union style stuff. We still had. Do we still have Mussolini around at that time? Um, I don't know, actually. Old Moosey. I'm still in, like, Soviet Russia time, so I'm just thinking of, like, uh, Stalin. (laughs) (laughs) Who was the president of Italy at the time? Stalin. No! I'm not saying that. (laughs) I know, I'm kidding. I'm just thinking of Darislav Pastel. Yeah, yeah. It's going to take a while to get it out of my system. Italy would be an absolute clusterfuck after World War II. Yeah, and 1948 especially was quite a volatile year in Italy. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he gets arrested in Italy. He has to go and serve time in this Italian prison camp. He did get released and that didn't stop Hans Wilhelm though. He continued on his journey. And finally, (laughs) he persuaded some crew members to let him onto a ship that was bound for Uruguay. Uruguay? Yeah. Okay, Uruguay. Uruguay. Once he boarded the ship, because he doesn't have passports, he just kind of had to like finagle with them. Mm Mm-hmm. So he boarded the ship and he burrowed into this pile of rock salt and just hid there for the trip over to Uruguay. Oh, oh my God. You would just, was he a mummy by the end of it? so thirsty. Oh, you would just prune up. (laughs) You just shrivel up. Ew, stop it. 
before that. Oh, no, I'm not going to tell you. What? <laughs> okay. If I, if I tell you the sound you were making, you'll do it. Mm. People are just like, no, I'm done with this fucking podcast. These people are idiots. <laughs> it's usually my fault, too. <laughs> you know, you're self-aware, at least. Yeah. You dumbass. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you for that. I'll take note. Okay, so arriving in Uruguay, Hans Wilhelm still had to get to Peru because Uruguay is on the fucking opposite side of the continent. So he had to travel to the west side, to the northwest up there to get to Peru. And then finally, two years after accepting the job offer at Lima's Museum of Natural History, he arrived and he just goes straight into that museum director's office. And he's like, yo, I'm here. Let's go. And the museum director was like, ah, that position was filled. Yeah, two years ago. <laughs> Genius. And he We've was, been writing you. He was like, cool, cool. Anyway, so what do you got for me? Because, like, I'm here. Uh, he was very insistent. He was a very tenacious man, and he never gave up on what he wanted. And he had also worked really hard to get there. Like, literally, he did prison time in Italy to go to Peru mm -hmm. and get this job. And all of his, like, tenacity and insistence and whatever, it all paid off because he ended up managing the museum's... Itch teal. Oh fuck! I looked Itch this up. Itch teal. Itch teology. Uh, itch teological. Yeah. Yeah. It. Itch the itchological collection. Okay. Which is a branch of zoology that deals with fish. Mm. Our power is flickering. Yeah, it's beautiful. We are still running. Okay. Cool. Oh yeah. Also, we have winds. Insane winds right now, and mm -hmm. the way that the apartment faces, it just takes on all of that wind yeah our uh glass doors are like rattling I can, and whistling if you look at it when there's like light on it the glass is convexing it's creepy from the wind. and now our power just flickered so anyway mm -hmm. this is a journey man this episode is gonna be unhinged i'm gonna take off with him <laughs> <laughs> so yeah he ended up managing that branch of the zoology that deals with fish you know and in 1950, his fiance Maria, she was still with him, even though he did some time in Italian prison camps and all of that shit. She was like, just let me know when you're there, man. I'm coming too. Yeah. So nice. she took a South Pacific steamer to South America. I took a South Pacific steamer too. I knew <laughs> when I put that in here, you would have a shit joke. I knew it. <laughs> uh, come on, am I right? I don't know. All the Italian food. How is a... Okay. Nope. So she joined him in Lima, where she was also hired at the museum, but she ran the ornithology department. So that is the branch of the zoology that deals with birds. Oh, fish and, and birds. Yeah, they're just a match made in heaven. Yeah. So they lived this happy, peaceful little life in Lima. And on October 10th, 1954, their only child was born, a sweet baby girl named Julianne. Mm. And she was raised in Lima and spent her entire life learning. She would learn at school and her parents were constantly teaching her things. And she also endured and was exposed to a lot because she's literally living in Peru. Yeah. So, for example... You know, earthquakes were common. No big deal. It's, you know, yeah. it shakes, shakes things up a little bit. So, like, it was ingrained in her that things aren't what they seem and not everything around her was safe. And she just had a fucking good head on her shoulders. Mm -hmm. In 1968, Julianne was 14 years old, and her and her parents moved from Lima to an abandoned patch of primary forest in the middle of the jungle. That seems dangerous as shit. So I had to Google, like, why are they specifically saying that it was a primary patch because i was like does that just mean like yo this prime real estate does it well i'll tell you primary forests are forests of native tree species where they do not clearly where, where there are no clear visible indications of human activities and the ecological processes are not significantly disturbed at all so it's just pure like virgin land basically so basically just the middle of nowhere as you could possibly get yes and like no one's really cultivated in any sense of the word okay and then a secondary forest is like regenerated native forests okay. so they've maybe been cleared by natural or man-made causes at some point and it's kind of like regenerating okay but primary forest man they went in it 
never been touched, totally just as is jungle. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Hans Wilhelm and Maria established Panguana, which is a biological research station in the Peruvian jungle of the Amazon forest. And to this day, it's still around, by the way. It's the oldest in Peru. Wow. So Panguana's name comes from the local word for the undulated tinamo, which is a species of ground bird common to the Amazon basin. These guys were nerds. Yeah, they are. <laughs> Huge fucking nerds. I think they're cute. It's adorable, but... The family had a pet panguana that Julianne named Polsterchen, which means little pillow, because its soft feathers looked like a little soft plumage. Oh. So she named him a little pillow, or her. <laughs> At Panguana, Hans Wilhelm and Maria planned to conduct field studies on the area's plants and animals for five years, quote, exploring the rainforest without exploiting it. At first, Julianne wasn't really thrilled, you know. She's 14. She's focused on her friends and boys and going to school and all of that. She doesn't want to go live in a primary forest. You don't want to go live in the middle of nowhere and lose all the friends you ever had in your entire life? Yeah, so that's literally what she was thinking. She said, quote, I didn't want to sit in what I imagined would be the gloom under tall trees whose canopy of leaves didn't permit even a glimmer of sunlight. Yeah, that's a good point. She was like, I don't fucking want to go, Mom. But to her surprise, her new home in the jungle wasn't dreary at all. Oh. In her memoir. In her memoir. In her memoir, she writes, quote, It was gorgeous, an ideal on the river with trees that bloomed blazing red. There were mango, guava, and citrus fruits. And over everything, a glorious 150-foot-tall lupuna tree. Lapuna tree. Lapuna tree. Doesn't that sound nice? Like a lemon tree? Is that what that is? A lapuna tree is like... Just think of like the jungle and how you would see like these... Those really tall canopy style trees. Oh, yeah. Like Lion King. Yeah, yeah. What's his head? Drawn Simba, baby Simba on it. (laughs) Rafiki. Rafiki, yeah. Yeah, so like no lemons though? No lemons. Okay. Not on that tree, but there was lots of different citrus and guava and mango fruits, so, you yes. know. Fine, I guess. So even though the family lived in Panguana full-time, Julianne wasn't completely alone. You know, the family, they had little pillow, the Panguana, and then there was a German shepherd named Lobo. Of course, there's a German shepherd. Yes, and they also had a parakeet named Florian. And together, they all lived in a wooden hut propped on stilts with a roof of palm leaves. It sounds like the start of a Disney story. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's like Snow White goes to the Changed the year a little bit, though. <laughs> Julianne's parents continued to bestow their teachings upon her and instilled in her not only a love for the jungle, but the knowledge of her inner working, of the inner workings of its unpredictable and vast ecosystem. Quote, for my parents... The rainforest station was a sanctuary, a place of peace and harmony, isolated and sublimely beautiful. I feel the same way. The jungle was my real teacher. I learned to use old Indian trails as shortcuts and lay out a system of paths with a compass and folding ruler to orient myself in the thick bush. End quote. Wow. Okay. And on top of all that, she also learned about different birds, bugs, snakes, frogs, all kinds of animals, from what they looked like to what they sounded like. And then she learned different survival skills, including being taught that if she ever got lost out there in the jungle, she should find some moving water, follow its course to a river, and follow that river because you're likely to come upon a civilization of some sort. Good advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, solid. So out here in Panguana, Julia was homes- Julianne was homeschooled for about two years. And so she, she was weird. <laughs> well, I mean, she's literally hanging out with like a panguana and a dog and a birds and some eh, jungle That's bugs. That's a joke to anyone listening who might be homeschooled. I'm <laughs> kidding. You're, you're great. Probably fine. Yeah, maybe. Great. Probably <laughs> fine. <laughs> So she's homeschooled for two years and she would receive her textbooks and homework by mail. And then, you know, this was like some peaceful little thing she had going on until the educational authorities demanded that she returned to Lima to finish high school. Mm. So she did return 
and she went to the Deutsche Schule Lima Alexander von Humboldt. Okay. It's, it's a German school. Yeah. And she finished her studies. She took her final exams and she graduated on December 23rd, 1971. Yay. On December 24, 1971, just one day after she graduated, Julianne and her mother, Maria, headed to the airport to make their flight back to Penguana, and this was Lanza Flight 508. Maria had wanted to return to Penguana on December 19th or 20th, but Julianne really wanted to attend her graduation ceremony and the dance afterward. As we know, she graduated on the 23rd. Mm -hmm. So Maria had ended up agreeing and they scheduled a flight home for Christmas Eve instead, which is the busiest time to fly is Christmas Eve. Yeah. So all of the flights were booked except for this one with Lanza. Now, Hans Wilhelm had actually urged Maria to find a different flight and avoid flying with this airline due to its poor reputation. Uh. So the airplane is that they were flying in is a Lockheed L-188A Electra turboprop. Okay. <laughs> so these Electras, for short, there was only 170 that were built and 58 were written off after they crashed or suffered extreme malfunctions midair. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he was like, oh, I mean, I know we fly a lot. We kind of have to just, we're literally from Germany and we live in Lima. Mm -hmm. And it's the best mode of travel to get around places in the Amazon. Yep. But I don't think you should take that flight. Yeah. But nonetheless, this flight was booked because it was the only one available, and Maria wanted to get home for Christmas the next day, mm -hmm. and they wanted to all be together. So her and Julianne were like, it's fine. Like, we're not nervous to fly. We'll be okay. It's literally like an hour flight. Don't worry about it. So just before noon, mother and daughter boarded Lens of Flight 508, which, like I said, is a Lockheed l 188A Electra turboprop. Mm -hmm. And this plane is carrying a total of 92 passengers and crew members. Okay. The flight was supposed to last less than an hour and it was supposed to be smooth flying. I almost said sailing. <laughs> smooth flying. Yeah. But about 25 minutes after takeoff, they began to experience some turbulence. Okay. But the plane had flown into a thunderstorm so this turbulence turned into shaking and overhead storage bins popped open showering the passengers and crew with the luggage and christmas presents and all of these things that had been in overhead storage mm -hmm. and then julianne recalls quote my mother was sitting beside me and said hopefully this goes all right though i could sense her nervousness i managed to stay calm end quote yeah, I have a feeling that uh, it doesn't go all right. So Julianne was sitting in a window seat in the second last back row of the plane. And she watched as a bolt of lightning struck the plane's right wing. And she remembers the aircraft nose diving and her mother calmly saying, this is the end. It's all over. And they oh. held hands while people around them were weeping and screaming. And it was pitch black because they were in the eye of the storm. The engine was roaring, so it was loud as hell. Mm -hmm. When suddenly, there was silence as the plane disintegrated in midair and Julianne separated from everyone else on board. Quote, the next thing I knew, I was no longer inside the cabin. I was outside in the open air. I hadn't left the plane. The plane had left me. Oh, my God. She s 
she said that that mid-air separation, because she got sucked out of the hole that the lightning had caused, mm-hmm. she said that that mid-air separation from her mother still haunts her to this day because they had been holding hands. Well, yeah, that's got to be like, that's the the stuff of nightmares. That's so traumatic. And at this point, she's only like 17. Yeah. So as she plunged from the plane, strapped into the three-seat bench, she spun uncontrollably toward the jungle canopy with deafening wind in her ears. And the last thing she saw was the treetops, which she said resembled heads of broccoli. And then she blacked out. Oh, my God. Well, at least she blacked out, man. Because that's... Can you imagine being fully conscious for the whole thing? It's probably like that force of it. Like, you're literally just free-falling in the air. Mm-hmm. And, like, she probably just literally got knocked out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, according to the Aviation Safety Network, the plane entered a zone of strong turbulence and lightning. And after flying for 20 minutes in this weather, lightning struck the aircraft, causing fire on the right wing, which separated along with the part of the left wing. So the aircraft crashed in flames into mountainous terrain and structural failure occurred because of the loads imposed on the aircraft flying through a severe thunderstorm, but also because of stresses resulting from the maneuver to level out the aircraft. Right. Because they were probably trying everything they could to level out a plane with one wing. (laughs) In the middle of this severe thunderstorm. Yeah. So that is what the Aviation Safety Network says likely happened um, in that moment. Which just blows the food network out of the fucking water, let me tell you. (laughs) So Julianne was unconscious for one day after she landed in the forest. And when she woke up, it was December 25th, so it was Christmas Day. Oh. And she was dazed. Santa come? She was lying under the bench seats that she had been strapped into. Uh, she was completely soaked and covered with mud and dirt because it had just been raining all day and night that she was just unconscious there. Mm-hmm. So when she woke up, she yelled for her mom, just yelling, like, where are you? Like, but all she could hear was the jungle. Yeah. And she realized that she was completely alone. That's got to be so disorienting. Mm-hmm. Like after all that happens and you're just sitting there and you're like, did that all actually fucking happen? And yeah. I just hallucinate that shit. Where Ex- am I? Exactly. And yeah. how long have I been here? And all you know is that you were holding your mom's hand and then all of a sudden you're in a fucking jungle. Yeah. So she said that instead of feeling fear, she said she experienced, quote, a boundless feeling of abandonment, which is honestly terrifying. That feeling of absolute isolation is nightmarish. Yeah. So she sat there and she was listening to the calls of the birds, the croaks of frogs, and the buzzing of insects. And she realized that she recognized all of these sounds. And she'd heard them all at Panguana, where she lived. So she knew that she was in the same jungle. And despite falling over three kilometers or two miles, she had survived this crash. My God. So the dense foliage had likely cushioned the impact, slowing her fall to earth, leaving her with relatively minor injuries. She had a concussion, which can be pretty bad. Mm Mm-hmm. A broken collarbone, a sprained, a sprained, ruptured ligament in her knee, gashes on her right shoulder and arm, gashes on her left calf, one eye was swollen shut, and her vision in the other had narrowed down to a slit. Okay, so really uncomfortable, very painful, but like you're fucking alive and you're not mortally wounded in any way. Mm -hmm. You're not even crippled, really. Not really, no, just a blown yeah. out knee. Like you, you, you're able to like move around. Honestly, her biggest worry was that she's nearsighted, and during the fall, she lost her glasses. All right, yeah. So, and also during the fall, she had lost at one sandal because all she was wearing was a mini dress and sandals. Yeah. So, 
all she had on her was one sandal and her mini dress that got all like ripped and torn in the mm -hmm. in the fall. And she that is honestly really scary to be nearsighted and you don't have your glasses. Yeah. So she said that she found this small bag of candy nearby that had obviously fallen out of the plane. So she took it. Okay, to yeah, keep I might dumbass for a second. <laughs> what? I might dumbass for a second forgot. Like, that probably fell from a plane. <laughs> Ooh, piece of candy. Yeah, I was just like, oh, she found candy? Dope. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, yeah, she did just find candy or yeah. in some articles, lollies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I just meant like, ooh, mysterious jungle candy. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, she took it. Like, yep. fuck yeah, candy. Also, who knows when I'm going to eat again. Mm -hmm. That's going to keep you alert, too. The sugar is probably good. Mm -hmm. And she said that she, even though she had lost one sandal, she kept one of the last one. She had the last one. She kept the other one. <laughs> so that yeah. as she was walking, she could test the ground ahead of her. Okay. So this is literally her condition, you know, the blown out knee, her broken collarbone, concussion, all that. Mm -hmm. But she was not deterred. Julianne gained her composure and she soldiered up and she continued on through the jungle. The, the, the fucking Amazon rainforest. Yeah. And she's a kid. She's like 17. Mm -hmm. And in the fucking amazon rainforest she had to contend with the horrible humidity and heat during the day but then the freezing rainy nights there was speckled caimans poisonous snakes and spiders swarms of mosquitoes like i like swarms mm -hmm. riverbed stingrays with barbed venomous tails oh my god and stingless bees that clumped to her face stingless bees yeah they just clump into her face. Still annoying. Yeah, just clump into my face though. Yeah. So when Oh, she... you know what they do? They're probably just licking you. Ew, yeah, probably actually. Oh, it's just... I'm not gonna do it. I, you know what? I've already <laughs> I've already surpassed the amount of upsetting noises I'm allowed to do this podcast from yet last time and <laughs> and this one. Trying to blow it out of the water. Yeah. So when she could, she waded through the water because it's actually safer than staying on land. For example, her father had taught her that the biggest threat in the rivers are piranhas, but they're really not that dangerous. They're only dangerous in shallow waters. So if you float out in the middle of the river where it's the deepest, like you're golden. And also like piranhas like won't really bite you actually. Not really. They're like dead stuff. Yeah. They don't actually like you could go in there and they're actually really scared of you. Mm -hmm. Unless it's in shallow waters when they feel brave. Yeah, apparently. Okay. <laughs> Listen, Hans Wilhelm knows. Yeah. I think he heard something wrong. So the plane crash had prompted the biggest search in Peru's history. And at first, while Julianne's walking through the jungle and wading through the water, she heard and saw rescue planes and helicopters above her. But no matter what she did, however hard she tried to get their attention, she couldn't. They, mm -hmm. You can't. It's the Amazon rainforest. You can't see. Yeah, the canopy is that. just completely covering. Like, you don't exist down there from up above. Like, you can't see that. Yeah. So, she, while she could see them for, like, the first couple of days, she always tried to get their attention. But mm -hmm. then, a couple days into her trek through the rainforest, she started to realize that there was no, no longer any search planes. She couldn't hear them. She couldn't see them. So, she became convinced that she would die, quote, without ever having done anything of significance in my young life. Oh, God. So while she's also thinking, like, I'm only fucking 17. Like, I haven't done anything yet. I still have this whole life to live. I have so much to offer. I want to do this. She was also grappling with knowing and trying to accept that her mother was likely dead. Mm -hmm. Like, she wasn't coming across anybody else. Yeah. So... This is when she made a promise to herself, and she vowed that if she stayed alive, she would devote her life to a meaningful cause that served nature and humanity. Okay. And, my God, does she keep that promise? Mm. So, on her fourth day in the jungle, she heard the noise of a king vulture land nearby. And she fucking knows exactly what that sounds like because she's been living in the jungle for years. But it scared her. Because vultures aren't going to land unless they have something to eat. Uh-oh. So she knew 
that something dead was nearby. And she feared that it was bodies from the crash. And she had never seen a dead body before. Mm-hmm. She was very scared. She did not want to have to come upon a dead body. Yeah. But as she turned a corner in the creek, she came upon a row of seats from the plane. And strapped inside the seats were the bodies of a woman and two men who had landed headfirst with such force that they were buried three feet in the ground and their legs were jutting upward. Oh, Jesus Christ. And Julianne said, quote, it was horrifying. I didn't want to touch them, but I wanted to make sure that the woman wasn't my mom. I grabbed a stick and turned one of her feet carefully so I could see the toenails. They were polished, and I took a deep breath. My mother never used polish on her nails. Okay. So she didn't have to find the body of her mom. Yeah, that would be very hard to... But she was do. still really scared because she had never seen a dead body. You already feel so scared and isolated. You're in the back of your mind obviously worrying like, am I the only fucking one that's out here? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of slowly confirming that, yeah, you are. Yeah. So she's like relieved that she doesn't have to find her mom, but also... In the back of her mind, knowing, I don't think my mom made it. Mm -hmm. So then you also have that dread on top of you of like, am I ever going to find my mom out here? Or like, she just lost to the jungle. So she's continuing her hike through the jungle and she came upon this creek, which became a stream, which eventually became a river. Oh, good. So she remembered what her parents taught her. Yeah, follow the river to find civilization. Yeah. So for days. Follow the Amazon River. Follow (laughs) the Amazon River. So for days, she walked, and it was the middle of the wet season in the jungle. So the bugs are disgusting. She dealt with severe insect bites and maggots in her wounds. There was no fruit within reach to pick. So she didn't have anything fresh to eat. It's wet season, so there's no dry kindling to make any sort of fire. And all Julianne had was river water. I'm going to gross everyone out, right? Ready? Okay. You ready for it? Okay. She did have something to eat. What? She'd take one of those maggots out of her mouth. Pop it in her mouth like a fruit gusher. That is disgusting. That is disgusting. <laughs> Good eats. It isn't. It's grub. That's foul. So Grubs. <laughs> in reality, all Julianne had to eat was nothing because she flew through that small bag of candy. Mm-hmm. So she just had river water to sustain her. Oh, uh, so, I would have scoured the, uh, I was thinking earlier, like, did she go to the plane and like, see if there's a radio? She can't go to the plane. The plane, she. F- That's true. Flung right. out a the, hole in the plane. The, the bodies were just probably. Sc- yeah. It was other people that got yeah, sucked yeah. out of the plane, but right. the actual body of the plane crashed into a mountain. Like God knows how far. Yeah. Right. Right. In right. like a fiery wreckage. Mm-hmm. So she couldn't have done that. That's true. Okay. So after nine days of hiking, she couldn't stand properly. She was exhausted and hungry and fatigued. She can't sleep at night because it's so cold and rainy. Mm-hmm. So she just kind of drifted along the edge of the river, just kind of letting it take her where it went, where she went. Because uh, at this point, she just she's sick and tired, and she felt so lonely. And she said that she felt like she was in a parallel universe far away from human beings. So disassociating, really. completely. Yeah. And she feels like she's in a parallel universe. So mm-hmm. when she comes th- upon this large boat, she thinks she's hallucinating. Oh my god! So she reaches out and she touches this boat. And she realized it's real. And it was like this adrenaline shot that just like brought her back to reality. Mm-hmm. No one's in the boat, but this is a boat, which is a good sign. Yeah. It means someone brought this boat here. So she's alert now. She's kind of looking around and she sees this small path leading into the jungle. So she's like, of course, I'm going to follow this path. I mean, the boat is at the end of this. I got to go see where this leads to. So she goes into this little path into the jungle and she finds and encampment set up by either local fishermen or lodgers. It depends on what source. Right. So locals. Yeah. And this encampment has a hut with a palm leaf roof. There's a motor and there's a liter of gasoline. So she went into the hut 
she gave herself some rudimentary first aid on her open arm wound that's Mm -hmm. completely infested with maggots. Mm -hmm. And she gave herself first aid using the gasoline. Uh. Quote. I remembered our dog had the same infection and my father had put kerosene in it. So I sucked the gasoline out and I put it into the wound. The pain was intense as the maggots tried to get further into the wound. I pulled out about 30 maggots and I was very proud of myself. Okay. That's fucking hardcore. Disgusting too. It's a uh, nightmare Oh, and they tried fuel. to bury deeper. Yeah, they uh, literally tried to burrow this is why you further. fucking snacked on them first. So she put <laughs> gasoline on her wound yeah. and then was just pulling out about 30 maggots. And there was still some left, but she got out all she could before she was going to faint. Because the pain right. is also disgusting. And she yeah. hasn't eaten. She's tired. Yeah. So she did the best she could. But, man, she's badass. Mm-hmm. So... She's exhausted at this point. She stays in the hut. She kind of tries to rest. And then a few hours later, the returning locals find her in their hut. And at first, they were, like, really scared because they thought that she was a water spirit called Yamenaha, which is this water goddess. It's, like, a figure from local legend who's this hybrid of a water dolphin and a blonde, white-skinned woman. Okay. And, right. I mean, she looks it's like she's... Both her parents are German. Like, she's yep. a blonde, light-skinned woman. Mm-hmm. And so they were like, what the fuck? Show us your tail, devil woman. Yeah. So <laughs> they were like, oh, my God, what has happened? We've been gone for, like, a couple hours. But they ended up snapping out of it. They got over it real quick because she's lived in Lima, like, her whole life. So she's fluent in Spanish. Mm-hmm. So she introduces herself in Spanish and she explains what happened. She fucking got sucked out of an airplane and has been wandering for pushing two weeks. And they gave her some more first aid. They fed her cassava, which is a root vegetable that has a nutty flavor. Okay. And they let I her know s- that was a Google search. <laughs> yes, it was, because I was like, what's a cassava? cassava? Yeah. And then they let her sleep in the hut because it was getting later. Mm-hmm. So... They're like, okay, in the morning, we will take you for help. But in the meantime, here's some cassava, cassava, whatever, mm-hmm. and ha- try and have a little nap. Mm. So the next morning, the men used a canoe to transport Julianne to a more inhabited area. And once in this inhabited area, which is a little village, she was airlifted to a hospital. And in total, Julianne had been in the Peruvian jungle for 11 days and was the sole survivor of Lanza Flight 508. Oh, that's fucking wild. I know. Ugh. She fell two miles, which is three kilometers. Survived off water only for water the 11 days. Which, some like, candy. I know you can live for a while without food, but like the hunger pains, man. The, the hunger pains for sure. And you can only, like, you can have the water that's good, but like, you know, you just pray to God it's actually clean. Yeah. And. It's three days without water and two weeks without food. Oh. I think. Yeah, and I think you're right. She's 11 days without food, other yeah. than candy. So I'm like suckers, basically. Jesus Christ. And she wasn't about to eat anything that she found out there. Like, you don't know she's what like, you're going to eat. It's probably all poisonous. Yeah. So. You, you don't want to eat a mystery jungle food. No, I don't. Like a snail. Is this a good snail to eat? Is it escargot? Is it an escargot? fucking go fuck yourself and you just drop dead <laughs> escargot or escargot fuck yourself <laughs> yeah, like i don't know <laughs> and she's fucking smart she's literally been raised out here her parents have taught her everything and like this really ominous way of like prepping her for this exact situation yeah and man she she fucking did it it's terrible when i was 17 i was a fucking idiot I would have dropped down out of a plane and survived in the jungle. Yeah, right. I have zero sense of direction. Right. <laughs> You'd be like, I should go deeper into the woods. Yeah, yeah, yeah I would yeah, go yeah, upstream. Yeah. <laughs> no, you should go down. <laughs> this creek, that's not good. You get as far away from this creek as possible. You never know when it's going to turn into a flood. Meanwhile, she's in it, in the middle. Anytime she came to water, she would walk right in the middle. Yeah, that's brilliant. 
I never thought about that, but like that's brilliant. Like really, what is what's in the water that's gonna hurt you? Like nothing. Crocodiles, maybe. Yeah, though that's what the speckled caimans are, but they're small and they're not swimming underneath where you can't see them. You would see yeah. them coming. Yeah. For the most part, and also you see them came in. Yeah, you'd see them came in, and also they're not just hanging out in the water. Those are animals, reptiles that usually yeah. are like sunbathing or monitoring for See, essential like food on the shore and that's the other thing that just like highlights how brilliant she was she didn't stop to try to grab like food like no. to try and hunt because she knew her capacity like her ability and she was like i gotta go yeah there was some quotes and articles where she had said like even if she wanted to she couldn't mm-hmm. there wasn't anything that she could try and hunt out there you're not going to risk eating something you catch out there. Yeah. It could be infected with something poisonous. It could be poisonous. You want to rely solely on food sources that are natural, like berries and fruits and whatever. But it's the wet season where nothing's accessible to you to eat. Mm-hmm. So she just was like, no, I'm listening to what my parents told me. Follow this water source until i find civilization and that's really the only way i'll survive out here she yeah. fucking did it yeah at 17 after you've been separated from your mom mid-air mm-hmm. you don't know where she is you know deep down that she's dead and you don't know if you're going to be rescued from the fucking amazon rainforest yeah that's amazing she is Amazing. That's tough as shit. She is hard as nails. I would I would laud that over people all my life. Someone would be like, Are you sure you could do this? It's really difficult. And I'd be like, literally fell off an airplane and survived the fucking Amazon rainforest. What have you done? Yeah, <laughs> and then that is just like some of it. Like she just she made that promise to herself. When I get out of here, I'm going to do something that serves nature and humanity, and I'm going to make something of my life. I'm not ready to go yet. Mm-hmm. And she fucking does it. Yeah. The day after her rescue, Julianne was reunited with her father, who could barely talk. He was probably just beyond words to see his daughter, who's actually alive 11 days after. Yeah. And he just held her. He just held her and didn't let go forever. Mm -hmm. And she recovered in the hospital with her father faithfully by her side. And after recovering from her injuries... Julianne assisted search parties in locating the crash site and recovering the bodies of the victims. Okay. Again, with her father right there by her side. Number one, to support his daughter. Mm -hmm. But also because he was frantically trying to find Maria. He wanted to know where his wife's body was. That's right, yeah. And her body was discovered on January 12th, 1972. So 19 days after the flight went down. Okay. Okay, so 14 passengers were discovered to have survived the initial crash, but sadly they had died either from their injuries or waiting to be rescued Mm -hmm. because of their injuries. Oh, and the one person who would have been like, hey, you know what? Like, we walked down this river. Oh, no. And her mother was one of these people. Oh, God. Her injuries were so severe that she couldn't try and get out. Mm-hmm. And Julianne said, quote, Later I found out that she also survived the crash, but was badly injured and she couldn't move. She died several days later. I dread to think what her last days were like. Yeah, that's that's terrifying. That's so sad. Yep. It is awful. So, in total all six crew members and 91 of the 92 passengers were killed Mm -hmm. and only julianne survived that's amazing wild wild to think about yeah so julianne moved to germany 
where she fully recovered from her injuries and she just sort of tried to move forward with her life. She achieved reluctant fame, quote, thanks to a cheesy Italian biopic in 1974 called Miracles Still Happen, in which she's portrayed as a hysterical dingbat. Yeah, okay, all right. That's from the New York Times. So, yeah, yeah, I, I definitely didn't watch this movie, but... No, it sounds like shit. It's... They made her a hysterical dingbat. Yeah. That's very Italian to do. I know. For, for like 1970s Italy. <laughs> right. So Julianne avoided the media for years. Plus, remember when this happened to her? She is 17. Mm-hmm. Like, and she was barely 17. Because this happened in December and her birthday's in October. Mm-hmm. And that is what you see. I'm a hysterical Italian dingbat. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? Dingbat. Come on. Well, that's, yeah, that's I how know, I know. the New York Times description, but also described it's... it. And so, yeah, she obviously and naturally avoided the media for years because they were sensationalizing her ordeal and oh, they were making these terrible biopics and they were depicting her story with these wildly inaccurate details and just making her like some fucking idiot. Yeah. When you heard everything I told you, she's far in the opposite direction than an yeah. idiot. She's amazing and smart and even in these terrifying nightmare circumstances remembers those survival tips and skills and everything she learned mm-hmm. to save herself at 17 my god it's just amazing so instead like i said she focused on herself um moving forward with her life she was really having a hard time with nightmares from all of this naturally Yep. She literally held her mom's hand as she got sucked out of a plane. Yep. So she was focusing on overcoming those nightmares, focusing on overcoming her now new fear of flying. She never used to be afraid of flying. Obviously, she is now. And instead, she would focus on positive things, overcoming those burdens to her and just focusing on this amazing legacy that she was going to build. Mm-hmm. So like both of her parents, she studied biology at the University of Kiel. She graduated in 1980, received a doctorate from Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich, and then she returned to Penguana in 1981, where she spent 18 months researching her graduate thesis on diurnal butterflies and her doctoral dissertation on bats. Okay, those are cool. Both really cool, and she went back to Penguana to do this research. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1989, she married Eric Diller, who is a German etymologist who specializes in parasitic wasps. Diller. No. So in 1989, Julianne becomes Julianne Diller. Yeah. Also, I parasitic wasps freak me the fuck out, man. Wasps in general, let alone if they're parasitic. Oh, God. Like the tarantula killing wasp? No, thank you. Yeah. Ugh. That's fucking scary. Ugh, I said. Ugh. Dealer. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> so, Julianne, she laid low until 1998. So, like 20, almost 30 years, basically, of just mm-hmm. laying low. When she was approached by movie director Werner Herzog, who hoped to turn her story into a documentary. And he was interested in telling her story because he was supposed to be on Lanza Flight 508. Get the fuck out of here. He was supposed to be on that flight. Jesus. And he was scheduled to be on it while he was scouting locations for his 1972 film, uh, Aguirre, The Wrath of God. But. Sounds dope. A last minute change of plans spared him from being on this flight. So ever since learning that she had survived the accident of a flight he should have been on and most likely would have been dead, he was very interested in making a film, but he had been unable to contact her for decades since she avoided the media. Yeah. So he finally uh, reached out to her and got a hold of her. And one source I read it was because he found out who the priest was that did her mother's service mm-hmm. and through that managed to track her down. Okay. Apparently that's how it happened. I only read that in one place. But anyway, 
mm -hmm. got a hold of her. And surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, because it's Julianne. She knows what the fuck she wants and what she doesn't. She was like, hmm, intriguing. I'm actually very intrigued by this project. Okay. So she accepted. Yeah. And she traveled to Peru with Herzog and was flown by helicopter to the crash site where she recounted her story amid the plane's still scattered remains. Get out of here. Right. I guess that makes sense. Then why would they clean it up, right? It's the middle of nowhere. Right. Yep. So she literally tells her story amid all of the remains of this plane. I'm very glad she did this later in life. Yes, yes. Because now this it is feels more like a, I'm doing this for me and closure, and I'm going to put myself right in it, rather than like, I'm going to fucking re-traumatize myself because yeah. I'm back in it again. Exactly. Yeah. And you perfect that you said that because julianne said quote making the documentary was therapeutic at the time of the crash no one offered me any formal counseling or psychological help i had no idea that it was possible to even get help mm -hmm. goes right in with what you're saying yep and this was therapeutic for her also it's on her terms she said yes and she was sick of all of these like sensational biopics and terrible writings and news quote news stories and whatever about yeah. this and now she had a chance to be a direct part of it and trust that this person that's going to tell the story has a good motive behind it a personal connection to it and will tell the story right mm -hmm. and her story was faithfully told by herzog in this 1998 documentary called wings of hope which i really want to watch i haven't had a chance to watch it yet mm -hmm. but bit, and it and it obviously is going to overshadow the shitty one from 74, 78? Yep, 74. 74. And in between that, there's been, you know. Yeah, whatever. The, whatever but, dog but shit. But like, this is like the 98 version. It's her, like her in it, in actually it, telling it. Among the wreckage, working directly with the man who's making the movie. Mm -hmm. Telling her own story for the first time from her. Her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really want to watch it. I just, I just, you know, you just get busy. Yeah, busy writing the episode. <laughs> writing the episode. Yeah, I don't have time to watch the documentary. Yep. Documentary. Documentary. <laughs> In 2000, sadly following the death of her father, but he lived a good full life, Julianne took over as the director of Panguana. Oh, wow. And primary organizer of international expeditions. So basically that means that after you consult with her, mm -hmm. she can decide as and people who are consulting with her are usually scientists. Mm -hmm. uh, she can decide if you can come into Panguana and sort of seek residence for a bit to do some work and research and stuff. So that's what organizer of international expeditions mean. Oh, OK. Yeah. So she's like green lighting expeditions to her site. To her site, because yeah. as we'll find out, the site is huge. Mm -hmm. So it's this is like any scientist's dream because they can come in, they can live on the research site for a bit. They can explore this biodiversity of flora and fauna, and it's home to more than 500 species of trees, 160 types of reptiles and amphibians, 100 fish species, seven varieties of monkey, 380 bird species, more than 600 species of butterflies, 520 ant species, 26 species of orchard bees, and nearly 15,000 moths. Holy fuck. So you, if you're a scientist and or like a biologist, an etymologist, whatever, mm -hmm. you have so much species to work with, different terrain to work with, this flora and fauna, so you can have just a fucking heyday of choosing what plants and animals and bugs you want to focus on and just essentially create your own amazing environment to focus on and specialize in yeah and help continue to identify these species yeah that's really cool it's so cool so the research station that is in panguana it has three guest houses with a laboratory, a roundhouse for dining and workshops, several boats, electricity that is strictly generated from the sun, mm -hmm. a well pump, and Wi-Fi. 
Oh, nice. And Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. I was not ready for that That's one. That's very recent, but they have Wi-Fi now. Okay. In 2011, Julianne released her autobiography titled, When I Fell from the Sky, How the Jungle Gave Me My Life Back. Mm. And it won that year's Corinne Literature Prize. Okay. It's like something in Germany. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That same year, 2011, the recently created Ministry of Environment in Peru declared Panguana a private conservation area. So no fuckery happens because it's private. Mm -hmm. And Julianne enlisted sponsors to help acquire adjacent plots of land. So the property has expanded from its original 445 acres to 4,000 acres. Holy shit. Mm -hmm. They basically just went like, if anything is around here, it, we need to protect it. Yes. And it's the Amazon you, rainforest. Yeah, it's smart too. Because if you don't, right? Like those animals don't just stay in that one little slot of land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have 4,000 dedicated acres to mm -hmm. your research facility. That's amazing. In 2019, the government of Peru made Julianne a Grand Officer of the Order of Merit for Distinguished Services. Okay. Julianne visits the nature preserve twice a year on month-long expeditions. Much of her administrative work involves keeping industrial and agricultural development at bay. And she estimates that as much as 17% of Amazonia has been deforested. Yeah. And she says, quote, after 20%, there is no possibility of recovery. You could expect a major forest dieback and a rather sudden evolution of something else, probably a degraded savanna. That would lead to a dramatic increase in greenhouse gas emissions, which is why the preservation of the Peruvian rainforest is so urgent and necessary. End quote. That is why she is working so hard to retain these sponsors to help her buy the land and just keep expanding Panguania because the farther it expands, the more it's reaching into the Amazon rainforest. And the less shit that people can bulldoze over. Because it's private now. And under her stewardship, Panguana has increased its outreach to neighboring indigenous communities by providing jobs, bankrolling a new schoolhouse, raising awareness about the short and long terms of human activity on the rainforests, you know, basically climate and culture and all of that. Mm -hmm. And she says that by like retaining the services and education and all of that of the locals, and especially the indigenous people who've always been there in this part of the forests and everything, mm -hmm. then you are just it's really the best thing to do you're helping these people are native to the land they are going to take it seriously and help protect it and keep teaching and all of that so like she just has this huge outreach to people all over the world to sponsor buying the land but the people that help maintain the land and protect the land is outsourced only to the locals mm -hmm. so it's like my God, she's just amazing. Yeah. She's now retired from the Bavarian State Collection of Zoology in Munich, Germany, where she was the deputy director, but she has stayed there to serve as the librarian. Okay. Which she does sometimes, and then sometimes she travels back to, Pangor to Pangoria and just Panguana, I mean, and she is just, my God. She's doing a fuck ton. She's so cool. Mm -hmm. so i'll end this on a quote and a fun fact so what what do you want first hit me with the fun fact first the fun fact is that in 1956 when her parents are in lima and in panguana and doing the damn thing a species of lava lizard endemic to peru was named in honor of both of them in honor of hans wilhelm and maria and it's called the Microlophus Cupcorum. Cupcorum. <laughs> That's cool. So they have their own lizard named after them. Wow. And so the quote. Quote, this is from Julianne. The jungle is as much a part of me as my love for my husband, the music of the people who live along the Amazon and its tributaries, and the scars that remain from the plane crash, end quote. 
Basically, she's a bad bitch who has not let the plane crash and the death of her mother and everything dramatic ensuing from that sort of establish her in any way. It's made her very strong, Mm -hmm. but she doesn't hold it against the jungle. In fact, she thinks that the jungle basically caught her and saved her. Mm -hmm. And she made that promise to herself when she was out there that she was going to do something amazing for nature and for humanity and she's literally done both of those things yeah she's held true to to her word degree to herself she's continuing the legacy of both of her parents established who established panguana she's the director she's keeping it going she's expanding it beyond belief it's now protected and oh my god she is so awesome Mm -hmm. she is just amazing and 17 years old, surviving almost two weeks out in the fucking Amazon rainforest. Could Les Stroud even do that for fucking 14 <laughs> days, basically? She was out there for 11. I'm exaggerating. It's yeah. just, like, insane. That's it. That's that's Julianne Kupka. Amazing. A.K.A. Julia Julianne Diller, because she got married. Yeah. So, yeah. That's very cool. I like that one. Just a nice little change up from... Yeah. Just everything else we've been doing. So Yeah, we went from a non-survival story to a survival story. Because Basically. we needed it, yeah. And also, that like this has been a case that I've wanted to do for a while. But then we had that super awesome review that said, like, um, one of their favorite episodes we've done is on Danelle Ballingy, which was a survival story. Mm-hmm. So I was like, wanted to revisit one because it also... Just has a special place when we talk about survival stories because it's the first episode we ever did. It's the Sea Orphan. Yeah. And that is a really cool survival story. Mm-hmm. So I just like those ones because yeah. it is kind of the opposite side of a lot of content we cover of just devastation, loss of life. Yeah. And this has that. This does have that devastation, the loss of life. Julianne literally was ripped from her mother. But she has just forged ahead and in her own way created life created this um like grown this amazing research facility Mm -hmm. and just protecting the land making resources for locals like oh my god i just think that she's super inspirational yeah and i wanted to tell her story so hope everyone enjoyed that i loved it great job thank you you're welcome All right, everyone. Um, that's it. So uh, you want to uh, follow us on Instagram? You know, <laughs> we got Dark Adaptation Podcast. Yeah, I'll post some. Fo- I'll post some photos about this case. I'll post some photos of Julianne. Uh, you can just go and see what kind of photos I post. Okay, I got some. I'll post them. <laughs> also, you can send us some case suggestions if you want to. We got a website, darkadaptationpodcast.ca. You can uh, check that out. We put sources on there. There's like you can buy some coffee if you want. And, you know, all that stuff. So, like, thanks for listening. Yeah. And, um, I think I'd show the website. Bye.